From Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Brad Smith and Intuit. I've always had a signature at the end of every email, which is work hard, be kind, take pride. And I've always encouraged our team to never mistake kindness for weakness. So I may not be someone that is liked universally, but I do hope I am someone that people would say was always kind. How Brad Smith reinvented Intuit into a high-powered cloud-based platform and reignited a startup culture in the decades-old software company. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So a few years ago, you might have seen an article in Fortune magazine with the headline, Why Isn't Intuit Dead? Good question, actually, because software companies don't normally last that long, let alone four decades like Intuit has. In fact, since 2008, the company's stock price alone has gone up more than a thousand percent. And a big reason for that is Brad Smith. He led into it from 2008 to 2018 through one of the company's biggest transformations into an open cloud-based platform. And he did it by changing into it into what he calls a 36-year-old startup creating a startup culture in a company with 9,000 employees and offices around the world. And as you'll hear, Brad was partly inspired by reading about and learning from other Silicon Valley greats like Steve Jobs and Sergey Brin. Brad actually grew up far away from Silicon Valley in a small town in West Virginia. It's called Canova. And as a kid, it was a pretty idyllic place to be. I felt like I didn't want for anything. We had a great childhood. We played outside. We had lots of friends in the neighborhood. We had a wonderful school. We ended up with a great sports program that won 10 out of 20 state championships in a 20-year period. And I felt like I had just a loving family. When I look back in hindsight, I realize relative to other things I've been exposed to, we may not have had as much as others, but we certainly didn't know that and we didn't spend time thinking about it. Um, tell me about your parents. What did, what did they do? My mother and father are my greatest role models. My, my dad worked for Nestle Foods for 26 years. He went on to be the mayor of our hometown and in his second term, unfortunately, passed away of a heart attack at the age of 58. Hmm. My mom still lives in Canova, West Virginia, as do my two brothers. 
My mom was a homemaker and a wonderful mother, and she literally took care of all three boys while my dad traveled Monday through Friday out of town. And between the two of them, they set the example that I hope to one day reach. Hmm. I'm curious, um, during the time that, that your dad was mayor of Canova, um, I mean, imagine you, you saw him interact with the community a lot, you know, give lots of speeches and stuff. Did you, I mean, were you embarrassed? Did you, or did you feel like a sense of pride when, when you would watch him speak? I did feel a sense of pride. My father was an amazing man. He was a self-made man. He didn't get the chance to finish high school. He and my mother had the gift of my older brother when they were seniors. He did go ahead and get his GED, and then he was able to rise from that opportunity and have a stellar career at Nestle. And then when he was elected mayor, it was a significant event for our family and for our town. He helped pull the town out of a pretty tough situation and turn it into a prosperous next chapter. But I was home one time watching him present, and over a July 4th holiday, he was making a speech, and there were a lot of citizens there, and they were in their folding chairs, and he used the word ain't Hmm. probably a dozen times. Hmm. And so I went up to him afterwards, and I said, Dad, do you mind if I give you some feedback? And he said, certainly. And I asked him why he would use that kind of grammar when he would correct me and my brothers at the dinner table. Hmm. And he smiled at me, and he said, son, this is who I am. And if you look at those citizens out there, many of them are just like me. And perhaps if they see the mayor able to be a mayor and still use the word ain't, one of them may dream of being the mayor as well. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, never forget, people prefer their leaders to be authentic and to be vulnerable because that makes leadership more attainable for the rest of us. And I took that lesson through the rest of my career. So he was not an educated man, but obviously an intelligent guy. And his, his feeling was, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to meet people, you know, you've got to meet people uh, at a level where they can relate to you and they can feel comfortable around you. Yes. He used to always tell me to put a chink in your own armor, that people prefer vulnerability, that we all look in the mirror and we see our own insecurities and we doubt ourselves. But if we see someone else is able to do something and they may have a, a chink in their armor, then perhaps we can do the same thing. And so he believed you inspired others through humility and vulnerability. Now, how, what were you like as a, as a student? Were you a pretty good student? Was, was school pretty easy for you? Well, that's a two-chapter story. Uh, up till the fourth grade, I think I enjoyed playing outside a lot more than I did studying. And then I was in a spelling bee with a young girl that I had a crush on in the fourth grade, and she beat me in the spelling bee. The next day, she passed me a note and said, you can't be my boyfriend because you're stupid. <laughs> and I went home that yes, I went home that night, and I can guarantee a guy that my IQ didn't go up, but my work ethic did. And from that moment on, I really decided to start studying for the midterm the second day of the semester. And that really helped me academically through the rest of my high school and then on to West Point and to Marshall University. Now, you get you get into West Point, which is really a hard school to get into, and you last, I guess, a semester at the U.S. Military Academy. What what happened? Well, it was one of the greatest moments of my life, both being appointed to West Point and also the experience when I was there. But I also realized when I was there that I had a girlfriend back home. I had a family back home. I was pretty homesick. I'd never left that small town before. And I realized that I was probably more of a lover than a fighter. And so I resigned and went back home to Marshall, where my older brother graduated. And I really didn't look back. But at the end of the day, it was an 18-year-old making decisions based upon what his emotions felt at the time, as opposed to thinking about the future. But, uh, you know, I've, I've felt like it was the greatest experience I had the chance to go through. Yeah. And it's helped me through the rest of my life. But at that time, did you feel 
I don't know, like a, I hope it doesn't sound too harsh, but like a little bit of a sense of failure. I mean, it must have been a really big deal that you got into West Point and representing your family and your community, and then you're back after a semester. I did feel like a failure. Uh, when I left, it was a big deal to the town that I'd gotten appointed to West Point. It was a big deal to my father, my grandfather, obviously my mother and everyone else. And when I did resign and come home, I had placed well academically. I was in the top 5%, so I had proven to myself that it wasn't an inability to compete. It was more of what I felt like I needed to do with the rest of my life. But to be frank with you, there was a period of time where I looked back in those days and I really worried about whether I'd made the right decision. And it hmm. wasn't until later in life that I realized that the path I'd taken was the right one for me. What did you think that you wanted to do with your life when you got back to West Virginia and enrolled at Marshall University? I was still searching at that point. I had grown up with two dreams. One was to be a journalist, and the other one was to be a marine biologist. And it wasn't until I graduated and I had two job offers coming out of Marshall that I had to decide what my path would be, and that's where my father's advice really helped me. What were the, what were the offers? Well, two offers. One was from the Herald-Dispatch to be working with the newspaper, and the other one was join Pepsi and join their management training program. And I sat with my dad and I said, I really don't know what to do. Obviously, I've always wanted to be a writer and a journalist. And my dad said, well, I'll give you three points to consider. The first, choose the thing that makes your heart beat the fastest. The second is work in an organization that will surround you with people smarter than you so you will constantly learn. And the third is don't take the job based upon the pay or the title because those will change over time. And you would think that I would have gone with the newspaper because yeah. I wanted to be a journalist. Sure. But I sat back and, and I thought about it. And what really hit me, Guy, was I reflected back on my time in martial arts when I had begun at the age of 14. And by the age of 18, I'd achieved a black belt. But halfway up the belt rank, you become a student instructor. Hmm. And I realized as a student instructor, I got more joy out of watching my students advance than I did focusing on my own skills. And so ultimately, I decided I wanted to be someone who helped inspire the greatness in others. And I went with Pepsi and the rest was history. So you get a job after college with, I guess, with Pepsi. Um, and, and was that in West Virginia? It was not. They hired me off of the campus at Marshall, and my first site was Indianapolis, Indiana. And then in three months, they moved me up to Kalamazoo, Michigan. And what did you, what did you do for Pepsi? I was hired to be a part of a management training program, and my first job was to work with six Teamster drivers who delivered soft drinks to the supermarkets and the convenience stores every morning. And I was to work with them to help them get the display set up, to make sure we had in-store promotions, and to basically, as one of my bosses told me, to do one better than my number one competitor, which was Coke. So if Coke had one display in a 7-Eleven store, my job was to have two. And that was the opportunity that I started with right out of college. So you were like in your early 20s, and presumably you're in charge of a group of Teamsters, right? And uh, I'm just curious, like, what do they think about you? Do they think you were like some, you know snooty college kid or i mean did they haze you was it did you find it challenging to manage probably guys who were older than you and tougher than you <laughs> yes to all the above but this is where my father's lessons once again came to roost for me my dad did something as the mayor that was really unusual he rode the sanitation routes every tuesday with those who picked up the trash in the neighborhoods and i asked him once why he did that and he said son you'll never get to know your people better than if you ride for eight hours in the cab of a truck with them. 
And you'll never get to know the city better until you go down the alleys and you see actually what the city is made of. And so when I got to Pepsi, the first thing I did is I decided I was going to ride the routes with my six drivers. And if it was snowing and they needed help unloading cases in the snow, I would do that. And two things happened. I got to know my team better than most. And the second is they never forgot that I was there to help them. And so in every contest, they rose to the occasion and they helped me win and that helped my career go forward. So, yes, they were bigger than me, tougher than me, older than me, certainly more experienced than me. But they adopted me because I was willing to humble myself and to work with them and try to help them do their job. All right. So you're you're at Pepsi and uh, and and. Did you did you sort of see Pepsi as kind of the place where you like your dad was at Nestle for I guess his whole career? Did you see Pepsi as 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 your home? Did you think all right this is this is where I'm going to be? I did. I loved Pepsi. It was an incredible company. Very very proud of the products. Very proud of the culture, and they invested in their people. And they paid for my master's degree at night at Aquinas College, and I thought I would be there the rest of my career. So uh, so what happened? I was recruited by a competitor who offered me an opportunity to be the general manager of the 7-Up Company of Akron at the age of 27, and that wow. was something that would not have happened until my mid-30s at best at Pepsi, and they were offering me much higher pay. And so despite what my father had told me about never take a job for the title or the money, I decided to say goodbye to Pepsi and to join that next opportunity. Wow. So were they like, when, when you left Pepsi to go to 7-Up, were they like, you've betrayed us. What are you doing? They did. Uh, they had invested a lot in me, and you know, obviously they were disappointed in my decision. They tried to encourage me to think more strategically about my career, but at that moment, I saw an opportunity to take on a broader responsibility, and quite frankly, it was one of the worst career decisions I've made. Wow. Why? Because I violated the principle my father said, don't take a job for the money or for the title, and at the end of the day, I, in, I stayed in the company just about two years. And what I recognized was most of what I was asked to do was to implement the things that Pepsi had implemented three years earlier, and we were always in catch-up mode. And when I looked around, there were really good, hardworking people, but they weren't on the leading edge of the next chapter. They were constantly trying to play catch-up. And so I felt like that I was not in a place where I was learning and growing, and I certainly wasn't in a place where I was helping advance their company. And so I needed to step away. So you spent, it sounds like you spent two years at 7-Up kind of regretting the decision to go there. Well, I spent two years at 7-Up trying my best to figure out how to catch us up so that we could play offense and not defense. And then at the end of those two years, I realized that I wouldn't be the right person for that company. And I think they probably would look at me and say, hey, we're probably going to need to get somebody else in here as well. So what did you do? So a Pepsi mentor had left the soft drink industry and had gone into the direct mail marketing business. And this was before the Internet when you use big data to basically target messages through solo mail, through the U.S. mail. Sure. And so I followed my mentor and went to a company called Advo and first started out as the regional sales manager in the Midwest in Cleveland. And then from there, I was asked to come to Connecticut and be the director of marketing for the flagship product and then ultimately ended up as their senior vice president of field marketing. Wow. So you are a young man. You're like riding like this pretty, you know, impressive corporate track. You're at this direct marketing company. Um, and what was the next step for you? The next step for me was this was in the dot com era. I was excited by big data and using it to target through solo mail. 
but I got a phone call from a recruiter asking me if I wanted to speak to ADP, the payroll processing company, sure. that used technology and used data to basically help people be more effective in their day-to-day jobs. So I was recruited by ADP, and I joined them to become the head of marketing of their small business division. And where was that? That was in New Jersey, Basking Ridge, New Jersey. So you moved to New Jersey. At this point, were you, did you, were you married? Did you have a family? Yes, I had gotten married when I was in Cleveland, Ohio. I had a blind date, and uh, the general counsel of the 7-Up Company of Akron had gone to law school with who is now my wife. I met her on a blind date. I was blown away, fell in love with her at the very first time I saw her. And we ended up getting married, and she went with me to Connecticut. And when we were in Connecticut for the direct mail marketing business, we had our first daughter, Peyton. And then when we moved to ADP in New Jersey, we had our second daughter, Devin. See, this is interesting to me. I'm really interested in this idea of luck and chance. And you had mentioned that going to 7-Up was a mistake. But had you not done that, you would never have met your wife. That's correct. And, you know, when you look at it with a rearview mirror, you realize that your life is only where you are today because of the choices you made then. But when I step back and I try to teach the lessons I've learned in terms of decisions I've made, I try to go back to the principles that I use. And when I see a decision that didn't play out the way I thought it would, I try to see whether or not I adhere to those principles. In that particular case, the mistake I made was I chose a job based upon the title and the money, not based upon whether it made my heart beat fast or I was surrounded in a franchise with people that were much more further along the path than me. But to your point, if I hadn't made that choice, I wouldn't be where I am. Right. I mean, you could make the argument that you had to make that mistake. Like you you couldn't learn that lesson without having made that mistake. So true. And I've made so many more since. And thank goodness that uh, you learn from your scar tissues and you can get up and dust yourself off because that really does make you who you are. Do you, I'm just curious. Do you believe in in this idea that things happen for a reason, that they're meant to happen? You know, I'm a little like Forrest Gump. I think some things are meant to happen, and I think in other situations, we're kind of blowing along like that feather, and life kind of takes us where we're going to go, and at the end of the day, we learn from those experiences. So I think it's a mix of both. Hmm. All right. So you're at ADP in New Jersey. You're married. uh, You have a second kid. uh, It sounds like a great gig. uh, And then I guess you run into some hurdles. Uh, What happens? Well, so my wife and my two daughters and I did enjoy a wonderful time in New Jersey. And then the company decided to launch the first internet payroll product. And they tapped me to go down to Atlanta, Georgia to help start this team. They asked me to get away from the mothership and basically adopt all the Silicon Valley techniques. So we hung a pirate flag. I'd read Steve Jobs' book, It Was Better to Be a Pirate Than to Serve in the Navy. And our team worked really hard and we created this internet payroll product, the first of its kind. And then I also went up and convinced the board to give us two $20 million investments, $40 million in total, to allow us to basically cut exclusive deals with the two leading internet portals at the time. And my hypothesis was we could sell more internet payroll through the internet than through a direct sales force. One year later, we had sold 15 units at an average selling price of $1,800. And when you do the math, that is much less than $40 million. And I had to go present to the board and basically say to the board, look, we made a mistake and I was wrong. And so I called on the way to that board presentation and asked my dad, what do I do? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be fired. And my dad said, well, I want you to stand up in front of that room and I want you to basically say three things. Here's what I thought. Here's where I was wrong. And this is what I learned and I would do differently if I had the chance to do it again. 
And I made that presentation at the board meeting, and then I heard one single director clap his hand. And I looked up and thought, this is for sure my career ending as I stand here. And he looked me in the eye and he said, congratulations. You have now disproven the hypothesis that all these investors are saying that we'll be disrupted by the internet. You've proven we will not. The second your team built a world-class internet payroll product, and even though we can't sell it through the internet, we can sell it through our 2,000 salespeople. So we're now first to market. And the third is you are now more valuable to us. You made a $40 million mistake. And I know you won't make that mistake again, but I want you to leave here and make a bunch of new mistakes because that is how we learn. And they promoted me. So, so you make this mistake. Uh, ADP sends you to, to go build this product. You spend $40 million. You lose it. I mean, this is a disaster. This is a total disaster. Yes. And you go to the board uh, and you tell them, I've just lost 40 million of your dollars. And and you're thinking, like, you're done. You're going to be fired. Yes. And instead, what they say is, you've your team's built an internet payroll product that we can sell through our sales force and be first to market. You've disproven the pundits who say that we will be disrupted with these internet mediums as opposed to having a direct sales force. And last but not least, you've learned an important lesson, but we love the fact that you've leaned into something that we didn't know and you taught us along the way. Hmm. So they promoted me and I became the senior vice president of, of marketing and business development for the payroll division. So at what point did you, did you start working for Intuit? So I went back to headquarters and I was at headquarters. We were doing roll up of the payroll industry. We were buying small payroll providers. And we started to run into a company from the Silicon Valley who was bidding more than we were on every one of these target companies. Hmm. And eventually I got a phone call that said, would you like to come out and meet with the team from Intuit? And I thought, well, hey, this is professional courtesy. I'll drive out there or fly out there and speak with them and see what I can learn. But when I got out there, I had a meeting with the CEO and the founder. I fell in love with the culture. And at the end of the day, I went back and resigned from ADP. Wow. They offered you a job. They said, we want you to work for us. They did. Yes. They asked me to join the company to help build their accountant relations business, which were the accountant referrals that helped get small businesses into the accounting products and the payroll products that Intuit built. And this was around 2003? It was 2003. Uh, they asked me to move to Plano, Texas, just north of Dallas. And I started there leading the accountant relations and our third-party software development network, so building our ecosystem of third-party developers and influencers. And after 14 months in that job, I got a phone call from the CEO who asked me if I would move to San Diego and lead the TurboTax business as a senior vice president for TurboTax. And so I moved my family from Plano, Texas to San Diego to lead TurboTax. And that was when we faced our first real disruptor in the tax business. It was a competitor who decided to give the tax software away for free and look for other ways to monetize. The industry was sure that that would be the end of TurboTax, but we made a decision to go free as well. And everyone thought that would chase the industry to the bottom, but ultimately at the end of the day, we not only advanced our market share, but our average revenue per return and our profit margins went up because our team had a lot more opportunities to monetize beyond that small startup. And it was one of the biggest opportunities to advance our business. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. All right, so you've got a competitor that's introducing tax software that's free, and, and Intuit decides to make its software free as well, more or less, right? That's correct. When I was in TurboTax in 2004, we had a disruptive competitor who decided to come in and make the tax software free. And we had a choice. We could either continue to monetize our software and slowly give away share, or we could meet them head on, which we chose to do. So just explain to me, how do you make money when you give away the software for free? There are additional services that customers can purchase from you. And at the end of the day, the federal tax return is only one of those products. There's also state tax returns. There's the ability to pay for your tax return out of your refund called a refund transfer. There's security and audit fees and other things that you can do to work with customers to give them confidence in filing their taxes. And so what we ended up doing was giving the federal return away for free and then monetizing through state and other products. And at the time we did that, we were making $29 a return. Hmm. And if you fast forward to today, we make about $58 a return and the average margin is 65%. So our team has innovated on business model ways to basically monetize customers over time. So what happened to that competitor? Is it still around? It is, it fell back to a distant third. It had climbed up from probably 13th or 14th in the market, and they've moved up into second place, and they were trying to threaten TurboTax, which was number one at the time, and they've now slipped back to a distant third. So really, you had to, you had to make that decision if you were going to stay relevant. We did, and we made the choice. We stayed relevant, and we were able to advance our market share as a result. Hmm. So let's just talk about this in context, uh, because you start into it, I think, in 2003, and the CEO at the time was Steve Bennett. Uh, and he he taps you to join the company and then run 
TurboTax, but but the founder of the company, Scott Cook, I, I mean, I, I assume he was still very much in the picture and in, involved in the company, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, Scott is still actively involved to this day. He comes into the office. Ever since he took himself out of the CEO role, he has worked with the existing CEO in the company and has also sat on the board, and he ultimately plays the most humble role of all. He asks every CEO and every one-on-one, how can I best help you in the company? And he will work with our product teams to help get new innovations out the door. Hmm. So so Scott Cook was still there. Uh, Steve Bennett was the CEO. And I guess within like four or five years of joining into it, uh, they ask you to become CEO, right? And I mean, this is this is right around the time of the of the global financial crisis. That's correct. Yes, I had joined into it in 2003. I had the chance to work in Texas in the accountant relations and third-party developer network. I had been asked to go to San Diego and lead TurboTax, and then I had subsequently moved up to Mountain View, California to lead the small business division in QuickBooks. And then in August 2007, we announced that my predecessor would be stepping down in January of 2008, and I would be stepping in at the CEO role, and that's what I did. And it was just before the Great Recession hit. All right. So 2008, you take over into it. Um, It's the start of the financial crisis. Many, many companies in the Silicon Valley and, of course, all across the country um, start to deal with the looming uh, and impending crisis. What what was going on with Intuit? I mean, were you guys facing headwinds as well, or or was your business kind of recession-proof? When you looked back over the period of time that we had been in existence, Our company was very resilient to downturns because our products are needed most when times are tough. Hmm. But in 2008, it was the first time it was a consumer-driven setback. So credit cards were maxed out. Home loans were no longer affordable. Home equity was no longer what it had been in terms of its value. And so it really hit every single sector of our customer base. And so the first thing we had to do is say, what do we do to navigate through this? And our decision was to be there for the customers. So we lowered our price, we extended our discounts, and we basically increased our levels of service. And we said, if we help customers through this period of time, then we think when they get through the other side, they'll remember us. And those were the choices we made, and it paid off. Did you have to implement layoffs? We did. In fact, in August 2007, when I had been announced, I had the chance to go out and take a look at all the parts of the business that I hadn't had the chance to be in at the time. And we looked at where we felt like we were over-resourced and under-resourced, and we felt we had gotten a little bit overweight in areas like our central SGNA, so our center functions, and we were underweight in our engineers. So we had begun doing reductions in force right when I started in January of 2008. Uh, we were moving people out of legal, out of finance, out of human resources, and starting to hire more in engineering and product management. And so because, as I had shared at the time, we repaired the roof when the sun was shining, by the time the recession hit, we were really in a pretty good place from an expense perspective, and we were able to play offense. So let, let me ask you this question, Brad. As a Not just as a CEO, but as a you know, as, as a guy from Canova, right, um, who, who had the experiences you had and had a family and all those things. Um, I mean, of course, as a CEO, you have a responsibility to the board, to shareholders, investors, um, and you have to think and manage strategically. But it doesn't mean that that is easy, especially when it comes to laying people off, right? Because you're you are essentially making decisions that 
could potentially have a, you know, a catastrophic impact on on people's livelihoods. Um, how did how did you kind of process that mentally? It's the hardest thing I've ever done, and it has been hard every time I've ever been faced with that decision. In fact, when we made the decision, one of the things that we did was we wanted to treat everyone with compassion, with dignity. And once we were able to get stable footing again and the company was in a strong position, we would open the door. And I am proud to say that to this day, the number one source of new employees are prior Intuit employees who come back home. Hmm. And Guy, we refer to Intuit as family. And I know there are many people out there that say, hey, you shouldn't talk about it being a family. It should be a high-performing team, and you replace the athlete if they're no longer able to do the job. But we feel like you can invest in people, you can give them a chance to learn and grow, and if they aren't performing, you treat them with compassion, you help them find another place, but they can still be family. And it was hard for me. I'll say that when I had to do a company-wide announcement, our chief communications officer was sitting with me, and I said, how do I deliver this message? Am I the optimistic I can see the light in the end of the tunnel, Brad, or am I the remorseful, I'm really sorry I had to do this, Brad. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to imagine your two daughters standing just below that camera, and I want you to explain to them why Dad had to do this. And that was the message I delivered. Let let me ask you about company culture when you became the CEO. Was there a lot of work that you had to do? Was, Was morale mixed? Uh, was it pretty seamless? Was the culture already strong and, and, and you know, you kind of just had to, you know, to take take control of the ship and keep moving it forward? Or, or was what was going on? Well, I had the benefit of following an amazing leader who followed amazing leaders before him. And the company was in a very strong position. But we had to transform the company from a North American desktop software company, which was the strong company that I inherited, to a mobile-driven cloud product and platform company that would do business around the globe. So we basically had to become a 36-year-old startup and reinvent ourselves from scratch. And that was the task that I had before me. So what did you do? Well, the first thing we did is we realized that uh, there were companies around us in the Valley and elsewhere that had transformed themselves. And we wanted to learn what was it that they had done to basically make that transition seamlessly. And once we studied them and we came back and we laid a gameplay out, uh, we basically stepped back. And the first thing we did is we communicated to the employees, we've questioned everything. And the good news is these are the things that will not change. These are the things you'll still recognize here tomorrow. And then once we confirmed what wouldn't change, then we outlined the things that would change and we explained why. Because we had learned this from this company or because we heard this from our customers or because we saw this in our technology, these are the things we're going to do differently. And we enlisted everyone in the company in that process, and that helped us transition the company to the next chapter. Hmm. So, so Intuit has, what, like, like 9,000 employees, something like that? We do, yes. So when you have a, such a huge company, it's, it's challenging to be disruptive, right? The disruptors are like, you know, some, a bunch of guys in a garage or women in a garage who come up with an idea, and then all of a sudden they take on you know, uh, Tide bleach or Clorox soap or whatever it is, you know, they, they come out with method, you know, or, or Airbnb all of a sudden becomes the biggest hotel chain in the world. Um, how, how are you able to make sure that you weren't going to be disrupted by a, a group, bunch of people in a garage? The first thing we did is we stepped back and realized that all 9,000 of our employees needed to be owners, 
operators, and entrepreneurs. And so we retrained the entire company on our two innovation techniques, customer-driven innovation and design for delight. It's basically lean startup, agile thinking. And then we gave all of our employees 10% of their time as unstructured time. And we explained to them that you can run experiments on anything that you think will improve the customer's life, improve your productivity or your peers' productivity, or make the company stronger. And we stepped away from the PowerPoint, the persuasion, and the politics, and we leaned in to proven experiments as a way to help us innovate and grow. And immediately from that 2008 to 2010 timeframe, we had over 1,800 experiments going on at any point in time in the company. And then the ones that rose to the top with evidence, we invested in those as the next chapter. And basically, all 9,000 employees helped us innovate and transform the company. And it's all based upon the old cliche that it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. And we wanted to be a fast-moving 36-year-old startup, and that's the company I'm proud to say we transformed into. Well, well, how do you, well, how do, you do that with 9,000 people? I mean, explain how that works because I mean, there's still meetings and bureaucracy and, and different departments and internal competition. I mean, how do you make sure that people, like, specifically, how did you create a structure where 9,000 people could take part in this? Well, you still always struggle with those things. Are there too many meetings? Is there bureaucracy? And I loved one of my peers once said, if you want to scale and have an impact on the world, you have to have process. But when process becomes slow and methodical, then it becomes bureaucracy. So you need process. You need to fight bureaucracy. So all 9,000 employees had an opportunity to basically create the next chapter. And we give out innovation awards, the Scott Cook Innovation Awards, to those top winners who have had a fundamental impact on our customer and changed the trajectory of the company. And when they win, their faces are put up in all of our offices around the globe, and they get six months off of their day job to work on anything inside the company that gives them passion. So it really inspired all 9,000 employees to want to become innovators and entrepreneurs, and that helped us transform the company. What, what is a product that came out of that? that unstructured time. We had mobile payments come out of unstructured time. We had TurboTax on the mobile phone come out of unstructured time, which is now a big way that most tax returns get done is by hmm. beginning on the mobile device, if not completing the return on the mobile device. Hmm. Um, we had time and attendance products. We've had lots of products come out of this. And what's amazing is it wasn't a lesson that we alone learned. We had spoken to people at Hewlett Packard. We'd spoken to the team over at Google. And we had asked them, how did you come up with your winning companies and your winning businesses? And they said, it's amazing. It very seldom comes from the corner office. As Peter Drucker said, the bottleneck is almost always at the top of the bottle. Instead, what we did is we gave our teams the ability to innovate and then put their ideas up on a lab and then watch for customers to see which one of those customers downloaded what products. And then we picked the winners from there. And so that really became the model that we adopted. So here's what I'm interested in, Brad, which is human beings, we are motivated by incentive, right? Anybody taking Econ 101 will learn that, that we humans are motivated by incentive. Yes. What kinds of incentives were you able to give those teams to go out and innovate? I mean, was it, hey, you get a piece of this. Hey, we'll give you money. We'll give you a bonus. Like what, how did you get people to, to become motivated to, to innovate within the company? Well, those were the questions we wanted to know as well. So we asked the 9,000 employees what would matter most to them. And one of the things that surprised us was we thought it would have to be monetary, and yeah. that was not the top thing that the employees wanted. They wanted to have an impact. They wanted to be recognized for that impact. And then they wanted time to work on something else. 
And so ultimately, the impact was clearly getting funded and having the ability to get their idea to market. The recognition was having their faces around all the campuses around the globe. And then the ability to take time off from their day job to work on the next thing. Now, what we did do was we put a sweetener in there that we never announced. We had one individual that created a business that was so significant, it became hundreds of millions of dollars for the company. And so unannounced, we granted him the Founders Award, and it was a million dollars in stock. And his picture hangs on the the campus around the globe as well. And now all the employees know that there is an opportunity that if they have an outsized impact on the business, they may also have a life-changing grant as well. Do you think, though, that there's an argument to be made that if big companies like Intuit or, you know, or Cisco or whoever we're talking about want to make sure that they continue to be leaders and innovators, that the model down the road should possibly change? You know, in other words, creating a model where those internal entrepreneurs get a, get a real piece of what they're building? I do think the model has to remain evergreen. The real question is, what is it that motivates those innovators? And many times we begin with a hypothesis, and then when we speak with them, we find out that's not the thing that they're solving for. So as I'd mentioned to you earlier, we truly thought that financial incentives would be the way to get participation in this program. But instead, we step back and we learn from them that it was about having an impact on the customer, having the ability to be recognized by their peers, and have the ability to spend time on things that they wanted to do that made their heart beat fast. And we have had no problem with getting people running experiments and basically helping transform the company. So I do think those questions and the answers to those questions may change over time. So we should constantly be pulsing. And I think we should adapt and evolve as companies to make sure that we're doing the right things for these internal innovators. Um, In 2015, you guys announced that you were selling Quicken, which is a little bit like, I don't know, uh, you know, McDonald's saying we're selling the Big Mac. We're going to we're not going to sell it anymore. Another company is going to own that product. Like Quicken was the heart and soul of Intuit. Um, Why? Why did you make that decision? Yeah, we're very proud of Quicken. It was the seed corn that gave birth to the mission that became a company called Intuit. And we're so proud to see them continuing to thrive in the market. But in 2015, we had taken a look at the next 10 years. And we had realized that the next chapter would be a platform, not a set of products. And that platform would be based in the cloud, it would be using mobile devices, and it would be powered by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And as we began to look at our portfolio of assets, we had worked for years with the customers using Quicken to try to move them to the cloud and on mobile devices, and they did not want to make that move. They were happy with the product as is. So we faced a tough decision. We either kept the product inside the company for nostalgia reasons, but we didn't resource it because we knew we'd have to put our resources into the future, or we found it a better home. And so I really wrestled with this and the management team and ultimately went to Scott, and I sat down with Scott, and I said, Scott, this is the dilemma we face. And without batting an eye, Scott said, Quicken is our yesterday. We're here for tomorrow, and I support the decision wholeheartedly. But, Guy, that wasn't the only conversation that needed to happen. Scott once explained to me when I asked him, how does it feel to be a founder of a company where another CEO is running the company? Yeah. And he said, Brad, it's like being a biological father who's watching a stepfather raise your child. And as long as you know that stepfather loves your child as much as you do, you're happy. And so I realized at that moment that Scott and his wife, Signe, 
had both brought Quick into life. They had made the sacrifices together. They had helped bring this product to market. So after the conversation with Scott, I sat down and wrote a handwritten note to his wife, Signe. And I wanted her to understand that this was not an easy decision and that I wanted to explain why we had made the decision. And I wanted to empathize and tell her I imagined it was emotional. And I sent her that note in a handwritten letter. And then I saw her a couple weeks later at a company function with tears in her eyes. She said, that meant the world to me. And I'm proud to tell you Quicken is doing very well now. The company's doing great. But it was because Scott and Signe saw the future. Brad, as a leader, how important is it to you that you are liked by the people who work with you and around you? I think at the end of the day, as everyone says, it's most important to be respected. But I will tell you that growing up as I did, my mother and father used to tell me you attract more bees with honey than vinegar. And so I've always had a signature at the end of every email, which is work hard, be kind, take pride. And I've always encouraged our team to never mistake kindness for weakness. So I may not be someone that is liked universally, but I do hope I am someone that people would say was always kind. Why would you think that somebody wouldn't like you? I mean, of course, you got to make tough decisions. You got to fire people. You got to shuffle the, you know, the the deck now and again. But w- would those be reasons why somebody w- wouldn't have liked you? I mean, no one is universally liked. It's it's, it's it's almost impossible. Well, I think human nature is what it is. Sometimes decisions that people don't agree with make them personalize the person who made the decision as the reason why, and so that could be a reason why someone may not like me. Uh, It could be because at the end of the day, I chose to not take a stand on something that they were passionate about, or I maybe had to shut down a product that they were working on. There's all kinds of reasons that I truly understand someone could get upset. I hope that doesn't lead them to personalize it and make them feel like they don't like me. But at the end of the day, if they do, I respect that. But my hope is that when they look back, they'll say, I always tried to make the decisions with clear principles and I always tried to treat everyone with dignity and with kindness. Um, you uh, used to release your performance reviews to Intuit's employees. You would just share the unedited performance review. Now, on, on the one hand, that sounds pretty uh, amazing. Like, wow, wow, you know, you're gonna all, all the warts are gonna be out there. But I have to imagine those performance reviews were pretty good. Otherwise, you wouldn't just share them unedited. Well. Every performance review has opportunities to work on, and I did share those unedited. And by the way, what's amazing was once I published them for the first time, my employees laughed and said, we already knew that. And so we may think that we are able to only show our strengths and our opportunities to grow and develop are not obvious to others, but they are. But what I found is by making it transparent, I was able to ask people to help me to help me course correct when I was going down the wrong path, to reinforce the behavior when I did it right. But it also set the tone for others that we're all a work in process, and let's be willing to give each other feedback as a gift, and let's all grow and develop together. And so that's really been the biggest upside from this whole process. If you were writing your performance review and you were trying to give yourself critical feedback about something you really needed to improve on, what what would you say? I have three clear areas that I know I have to continue to work on. The first is I like structure and harmony. And sometimes the best creativity and the best decisions come from debate and disagreement. And so I've had to learn to allow that debate to unfold and for me to sit back and speak last so that everyone can get their points of view on the table. So that's the first area that I have to work on. 
The second area that I have to work on is I recognize that my past performance was I would praise in public and coach in private. But I realized after getting feedback that I was robbing people of where my bar was, where my standard for quality was. So now I coach business performance in public and I coach personal performance in private. And that was the second. And then the third area is I have a tendency to say yes to too many things. Hmm. So I needed to step back and be really clear about where I'm going to spend my time and what I'm going to say no to. And those are the three things that are posted on my office door. Those are the three things any employee in the company could tell you Brad has to continue to get better at. All right. You have uh, you decided to step down as CEO. You are no longer CEO of Intuit, we should say. Um, you're a young guy. You're in your mid-50s. Uh, this is like a, a moment when people become CEOs. Um, why? Why did you step down? Well, as I said to the team guy, uh, the end date is inevitable. The goal is to make sure you're a part of the decision. And so when I set out, I had three objectives that I knew I wanted to have in the back of my mind that would help me know when it would be the right time. The first is when the company was ready, when we had transformed from that North American desktop software company to that global cloud-driven product and platform company that I mentioned earlier. The second was when the board had several really good options as successor candidates, and our next leader had clearly emerged from that process. And then the third one is when I was ready, and I never wanted to be that athlete that was a half a step slower and wasn't able to complete the pass. And some may argue that I had gotten to that point, but I really wanted to make sure that I was able to step out when we were still moving up and to the right. So that's what informed my decision, and I wasn't worried about how old I was. I was worried about whether the company was ready, the next leader was ready, and I felt I was ready. Brad, how much do you attribute your leadership to a, a natural instinct, something you were born with? And how much of your leadership do you think is uh, is a product of learned behavior, experiences? I believe leadership is learned behavior and experiences um, unequivocally. Um, I wasn't born with any special gifts. I was surrounded by an environment and nurturing parents. I was surrounded by people who inspired me and I was able to learn from their best practices. And I was surrounded by people who were always willing to grade me on a curve and basically give me feedback and help me improve. I think at the end of the day, for me, leadership is not the desire to put greatness in other people, but to recognize greatness exists in everyone. And your job is to create the environment for that greatness to emerge. And that's what the world's done for me. They put me in a situation where I was able to play to some strengths that I had and to learn from others. And ultimately, I've had a pretty good run and I've been very happy with the fact that people are willing to support me along the way. That's Brad Smith, former CEO of Intuit. By the way, these days, Brad is focusing a lot of his attention on his home state of West Virginia. He recently gave over $35 million to his alma mater, Marshall University. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.